can I see how many times we can say bosoms on this podcast? first book was published in 2006 and it's a memoir about Tibet and uh, it was my, I'd been working on it for a long time and I didn't know how it was going to fly but I was sent this very scary publicity schedule by Random House by my publicist. One of my first interviews was with Richard Feidler and it was an hour-long interview and I didn't know how I was going to cope with this. And I was—I drove um, to the ABC, the, to the offices in Sydney, and they ushered me into the booth. And it's a bit like sitting in a TARDIS. It's a bit like this, Stephen, actually. You've got these enormous headphones on, but there's nobody in the room and you're just talking to a microphone. And I remember being incredibly nervous and uh, this gravelly voice came on the phone and or sorry through the you know through the headphones and it was Richard Feidler and he said hi Claire how are you going and of course I lied and I said I'm absolutely fine really looking forward to this and he said all you have to do is speak in word pictures I'd never heard that phrase before but it was one of the most useful pieces of advice because it stayed with me and I use it to this day and I always tell people think about using word pictures so think about using some color some some sense of the senses to tell your stories because as soon as you do that they come alive for people the rest of the hours just flew by and I told him about my time in Tibet about my book and I used as much as possible these very fresh images um, so in describing people rather than just with names, but so you could picture someone. So, for example, the nun, I described her with um, uh, shiny red cheeks and, and wild dreadlocks. For the Chinese army officer, I described him, you know, the way he scowled at me, the way he growled. Those small things can make a huge difference when you're telling a story. Welcome to Tailmaking. I'm Stephen Lewis, director of Tailist. Tailmaking is a weekly podcast about getting your business message out with a particular focus on the power of storytelling and the techniques of journalism to do that. My guest today is that philosophy in human form. Um, Claire Scobie is the award-winning author of Last Seen in Lhasa and The Pagoda Tree. She's written as a journalist for publications all over the world, and she consults with companies on how to harness the power of storytelling as a strategic business tool. So basically, Claire, you should be presenting the podcast and I should be having nothing to do with it. But as it's the other way around, firstly, welcome. Thank you. Gorgeous to be here, Stephen. And secondly, I, I wanted to ask you, um, my first experience of, of a journalist writing a profile was on my boss. I was probably about 21 at the time and we were living in Hong Kong. And my boss was this massive personality and Hong Kong being essentially a small town from an English-speaking point of view, she would probably be profiled in the paper once every three years. And she was a generous person. She spent a lot of time with you. She was very funny, very open, very personal. And this profile came out, and the first thing it said about her was that it looked like she got dressed in the dark, which str struck me. She was obviously very upset. Yeah. As you would be if you spent a lot of money and time on your clothes, and that was the assessment for the populace. 
But also, having seen it from that side of it, as a journalist, it made me very wary about describing people. How do you go about painting an accurate picture of somebody, which may be that they're 300 pounds overweight and look like they got dressed in the dark? Do you, do you say that? Uh, no, I don't. I tend to be quite kind. I think there are always ways to say things and it's hard when when somebody you know if someone is 300 pounds overweight and they look like they have just come through a hedge backwards then you can be diplomatic you can think about how you say it you can use a metaphor perhaps uh, in fact I was just working with one of my clients yesterday and uh, she described someone with a teddy bear stature and I said, look, that doesn't work because it's a bit patronising. Uh, so then we went through all the different ways of perhaps describing this person, voluptuous. Uh, she said big bosomed. I said probably not big bosomed. <laughs> because uh, you're not right here, Jane Austen novel. Uh, yes, or? It, then it starts to become like a bodice ripper. <laughs> uh, so and in the end, we settled on broad shouldered and welcoming. So it's not... Um, it, it wasn't exactly, we weren't close enough. I think she's still going to carry on working with it. But I think you can always, you, you can allude to certain things without being so bald in your description. Now, I, when I'm thinking about describing people, what I always do is I always make tons of notes when I meet someone. Uh, when you're describing someone, it's not just about what they look like. It's also about their um, gestures, which um, I always call stage direction. So think about how you describe how someone moves their hands, um, describe their hands. You know, you can always focus on one aspect of the person if you don't want to focus on perhaps their size or perhaps their, their clothes or their greasy hair. So that's one thing to think about. Also think about how they speak. So really pay attention to their tone of their voice, uh, the way they put their sentences together. And then, of course, think about the dialogue. So you can build character and you can describe people through many different ways. And describing the, outs the exterior is really just the first start. You know, it's the first um, part of it. You then you want to think about how to develop character. Obviously, you've written novels. You're working on a novel right now. Um, without description, a novel is a is an odd, it would be a very odd novel. Um, but in in your corporate work, how important do you think description is to corporate storytelling? You know, the CEO strode into the room and cut a swathe through people as he made them redundant left and right. What is the... <laughs> so I think, I think it's a time and place um, thing. Um, it's not often about big description. It's not, it's not journalism. But it is often about one or two details, perhaps we call the telling details, that bring someone to life. And uh, it can be the verb that you use, just as you said. Um, verbs are much, are much stronger. They are, they are always what I say, they are the engines of the sentence. So when you're thinking of describing someone, perhaps don't just have walked in the room, strode in the room, because that immediately gives a sense of purpose. So you don't need to have full-blown purple prose description, but having enough description that the person can visualise what it is that you are saying does make a lot of difference, even in the corporate storytelling world. And it, 
it particularly makes a difference when you're talking about oral storytelling. So again, in your um, in your marketing copy, you might not want to have reams of description. But when we're listening to somebody give a story, tell a story, um, again, we want these little images because that's what we pick up on, that's what we visualise, and that's what we remember much better than if things are very stark. I'm sorry, I'm picturing now the big bosom CEO striding into the room. I'm, I'm still captivated by the, the journey from teddy bear through big bosoms to broad shouldered and what was it, were generous? And, uh, um, generous. It was a, it, she was describing a hug. So this, this actually wasn't, this is um, somebody who's working on a memoir, so it's not a corporate client of mine. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so a lot of it was stripped back. So, in fact, what we did was we added more dialogue to show the character more than just describe her big bosoms. <laughs> can I say, can I see how many times we can say bosoms on this podcast? It's been a long time since I said bosoms, so I'm really, it's a muscle I'm starting to exercise, but... What, you, what you've hit on, though, is the process of drafting, which I, having worked in corporate world, think, think happens too little. Mm-hmm. I think what, what happens in corporate world is you, you go through a draft for correctness of what is being said. No, the figure should be 36, not 42. And first drafts, as are, you know, are famously known to be shit, and they're particularly shit. Well, I speak actually. I'm, I say they are particularly shit. I'm talking about my own now. Well, I think so. Seth Hemingway. I yeah. Mean, so Seth, a lot of writers. And in my case, one of the things that makes my first draft particularly weak is my verb choice, because the first verb that comes to your mind is generally not the correct. It's the easiest verb, and therefore it's the worst one to choose. Yes. So another thing. Uh, there's a couple of things to pick up on there. Um, first of all, yes. You need to do drafts. And that's something that even when I run workshops for writers, they don't always realise. People come to my workshops and they'll say, but I thought I'd just get it right first time. And I say, well, if you're a cabinet maker and you've never made a cabinet, would you get it right first time? If you're a painter, would you know how to do perspective first time? No. So it's the same with writing. And I think that is equally... um, uh, relevant whether it's in the corporate sphere or not and thinking about how you're crafting something does take some time and often you need to layer it in so maybe the first draft you write is very basic the verbs you use are very basic but then with the second draft and probably the third draft I mean ideally that's probably enough you don't have time to do too many more drafts you're not writing a novel uh, then you uh, on the, by the third go though you want to have layered in the other aspects of the story so it's not just the facts and figures you've also got a sense of telling the story uh, if you're going to use storytelling now as far as using verbs and strong verbs um, something I often ask people is if I asked you to draw a cat how would you draw a cat so most people say, well, they draw a circle with two triangles as their ears and, you know, eye, nose, whiskers. So a ca- that is a symbol of a cat. It's not actually a cat. And just like cliches are symbols of what you're trying to say. So it doesn't matter in the first draft if you have boring verbs, if you have cliches, if you have even big bosomed. It doesn't matter. You, you're, you've got it in there the first draft. Uh, but then it's only a symbol of what you're trying to say, and then you think about how to make that come to life more vividly. I had the 
it, it's, I use a building metaphor with ghostwriting clients. So when I'm ghostwriting a book for them, I say, look, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go away and I'm going to give you back a draft that's really going to have none of the description and none of that in it. It's going to be about whether I've got your facts and figures and your model and the stuff that you want to get across correct. And then the process is it's like building a house. That's the structure. Right. Then we put on the walls and then we put on the first layer of paint, the second layer of paint, which is kind of what you're describing. And it is, of course, ludicrous that I would use a building metaphor as I know nothing about building. So for all I know, houses are built completely differently. But it is that wash, isn't it, as you continually wash through and and learning perhaps in a way not to hate yourself as well. Because when you go back to that first draft, you, you just think to yourself, how did I possibly think that sounded okay? Yes, yes, exactly. And there's a great book by Annie Lamotte called Bird by Bird. Mm. And she talks about how shitty the first draft is. But if you don't have a shitty first draft, how can you then write a better second draft and a third draft? And I think the your building analogy is a good one because it is about um, you, you build up from the basics and then at the end you're giving the final polish and the final um, coating. And certainly for me, there's when I'm drafting, uh, there's often a great sort of enjoyment that comes when I'm really stripping back. And um, I've written too much, it's a bit waffly, I really need to get to the point, and I call it my slash and burn phase. And it's quite liberating. People get very worried about cutting words out of their stories or their copy, but I actually find it liberating because by doing that you're actually getting to really what the heart of it is that you're trying to say. I can't remember whether it was reading Elmore Leonard's book on writing or Stephen King's book on writing. But one, I mean, I think both of them, but one of them in particular loathes adverbs. Right, yes. And, I and, think it's Elmore Leonard. And, Elmore Leonard. And I want a piece of software that will go through my writing and just highlight all the adverbs because when you start looking for them, I was editing somebody else's work, you know, and it's the really very long car, you know, drove really very fast, you know, Cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, yes. cut it. And corporate writing is, is no different. As soon as you start writing that something is very big, mm. you you know, which is no, you've made a mistake. I have also a real bugbear about adverbs uh, because they just slow writing down. They don't add anything. Um, same with too many ad- adjectives. And uh, Richard Flanagan, who was the Booker Prize this year, he described, I heard him talking at one of the writers' festivals, he described how he wrote to his editor... Uh, and said, please cut out any extra adjectives. You have my permission to cut them all. And I think, and again, people worry because adjectives, they think, oh, that brings colour. So you do need some colour in writing, but you don't want flowery stuff. You don't want padding. Interesting. Again, you've got the process of writing drafts and not, not hating yourself because your first draft wasn't good because your first draft is what gets you to your second draft, but also um, working with somebody else. Real, proper, professional, Booker Prize winning writers work with other people. Yes, I think that's a great point. Um, People will read a book and think it it was written by the author. And then, of course, you go to the acknowledgements and there's a whole team behind writing that book. Uh, And working with editors, certainly as as a professional writer, it's a great pleasure and it's a great privilege because you know that they are on your side and they are trying to improve or they are improving whatever it is you're writing. So, again, in the corporate sphere when you're writing, having someone just proofread your work before you send something out is incredibly valuable, even if it's just a straightforward press release or a straightforward memo, but if it's an important one, 
um, just having a second pair of eyes because there is something very strange about writing and that is when you are in the woods I say when you're in the story it's quite difficult to get distance and so even though you've read something three or four times you can't spot the spelling mistakes you can't spot the typos so you do need someone else to give you feedback and you know have a second pair of eyes looking at what you've written. Dave Cornford and I uh, co-wrote the Taylor self-publishing survey where we surveyed a thousand self-publishing authors Um, more than half of them claim to proofread their own claim to have proofread their own work which is i don't know like claiming to have proofread to have put your finger behind your eyes it's not possible to proofread your own work so essentially what they were saying is we have put our work out unproofread right which... yes and i think something i always say to people if they're going to go down the self-publishing route is if you're going to spend money spend it on an editor spend it on a proofreader that's the most important thing People think they have to spend a lot of money on the cover, etc. But actually, it's about getting the the words right because it's so disconcerting as a reader. And it, once you've lost that contract with the reader and you've lost that um, trust that what you're saying is correct because you're misspelling small things, they won't trust you for the bigger things. And that's exactly the same in the corporate sphere. You know, if you if you read a few typos in a report, then you think, well, what about the rest of it? You know, who's do I believe the facts and figures here? Do I believe the strategy? Do I believe the arguments? Probably not, or not as much. When when you're writing, you were saying earlier that you were, uh, let's say, big bosomed again, the, the author of the infamous now big bosomed description, um, or, or nearly the author of the big bosomed, until you saved her from herself. You've got to find someone you trust. So in a, in a corporate environment, you there still needs to be an element of, element of trust. Even if you're giving somebody your press release to give their commentary on, You've got to trust them not to say, my God, you're incompetent or this is terrible. You've got to trust them to work with you. How do you go about finding somebody whom you trust to collaborate on a piece of writing? Uh, I think uh, I, I go about it by asking the right questions and also seeing what else they've written. Uh, interestingly enough, I have a writing buddy uh, who I work with for, uh, for my fiction and we started try we we tried to start a writing group and we tried two or three different people we had three or four groups at various times and in the end everyone just fell away and it's just been us two which has been perfect we're very different i don't think you need to find someone who writes the same way as you in whatever sphere but you want to be able to trust them and more than anything you want them to be able to give you honest feedback it's not about someone saying oh that's great that's not helpful people you want someone to say this bit really works because the the flow's there but perhaps this bit you need to work on because it it's jarring or perhaps you can fix this in this certain way and that is actually a skill that a lot of people don't have knowing how to fix writing is half the battle with being a good writer you've got you've got to you've got to mesh with their style of giving feedback as well i suppose i I remember once when when i was working in corporate somebody complained about me because she'd asked me what i thought of the board paper that she had drafted and i said i thought it was awful um and she complained to the boss who said to her well can you give me the circumstances and she said well it was you know friday night we were in the bar i went up to him and i said and she said well let me just stop you right there Yes. It's Friday night, he's having a drink, you went up to him and asked for feedback on your board paper. Probably he wasn't giving you the same kind of considered professional feedback he might have given if you'd waited till 
working hours. But when I think of that relationship, she and I were never going to work well together on it because I need to work with people who, like I am, are open to And I think having been a professional writer, I'm, I'm not precious about it. Right. I want you to help me make... Like Richard... I, well, I'm not like Richard Flanagan because I haven't yet won the Booker Prize. But what I mean is I'm totally open to you saying, that's rubbish. Rewrite it. It makes no sense. Right. So I think there's two really good points there, Stephen. The first is that uh, it's important to know what you're wanting from your reader. So if you are asking someone across the office to read what you've written to just check there are no typos or or errors, then that's one thing. Uh, and you know, as long as they're a competent writer and they know their grammar, that you know that you don't have to have a strong relationship with that person. But if you are asking a person for um, feedback on how well you've crafted the argument, how well the piece is put together, does it flow from beginning to end, is the executive summary what it should be, then you you need to have someone whose um, advice you're going to take on board. And the second thing is a lot of people do get very attached to their words. Uh, you know, people, it's that famous um, phrase, kill your darling. So if you have a pet phrase that you love, often that's the first one that has to go. And people do get very attached and almost the more insecure they are, the more attached they'll be to their words. And therefore, if someone comes in and says, no, I don't think you need to do it like this, Let's think about doing, like, doing it in a different way then um, that can be hard for people to take. As a journalist, of course, as we both know, you can't be attached to your words because you'll send stories in and the editor will chop and change them. Often you don't even have a say and then they'll get published anyway. Uh, so you get, you know, I mean, I'm not attached to my words. I'm more, The only place I'm more attached to my words is actually with my fiction. But in any other sphere that I write, uh, people can do what they want to it, really. It's almost funny, isn't it, when you say that to a client, you know, you can you can do whatever you like with it, and they look kind of shy. I'm like, you bought it. it yes, right. It's yours. We, we just bought a house. I fully intend to do it. I'm not going to be phoning the builder up every time I think about making a change. They're, they're your words. You paid. Yes. They're yours. Yes, exactly. And I think that's quite liberating um, uh, because then, you know, people can, you know, and, if, and if, if people make corrections and they're incorrect, then, of course, I'll come back to someone. But if it's about changing words or style, then, you know, it's theirs to do that with. In, in corporate writing, so, I mean, I gave you the example there of the, the lady who put the board paper together and the argument was not well structured. In, in that, to, to get back to the question of describing people and things, there are certain areas of corporate writing where describing things is not going to be welcome. Do you, do you think you, it's easy to draw the line on that? Because I, I think most of the, when I think of most of the corporate writers I know, they would draw the line at not bothering to describe anything at all. That would be where their line is. If you're working with corporate people and saying, listen, let's try and get a little bit more colour into it, do you start them off anywhere in particular where, where, where is a safer place, for instance, to have some description? Well, a safer place could be with a case study uh, rather than just have a boring case study that doesn't come to life. Turn that case study into a real person. And even the smallest amount of description, such as their real name, their, the real title of what it is they do, People love names. People love being described exactly in the role that they are playing. 
uh, and we are going to connect with that person with a real name in a much stronger way. So start with a case study, see how you can bring that person to life and then uh, think about I mean, products you can and services you can add a little bit of colour to. You can also think about emotion. Is there any way of bringing in a particular emotion with with a with a piece of text? Can you can you give an impact on a customer? How did the customer react? The other the other things that I always say to people is um, there are certain aspects of storytelling which you can easily incorporate within business. So one is having a time-place marker. So a time marker is don't say long ago, once upon a time. or <laughs> In a bank, va- far, yes, far away. Be vague. Be very specific. On February the 15th, 2015, this happened. Then given it a place. This happened. Where did it happen? Locate it. Because all of those things, they're tiny little elements of storytelling. But what they do is they anchor the reader and they anchor the story. Then think about specific moments. So rather than make it all head stuff, and I, um, right now I'm gesturing to Stephen <laughs> above my head, because a lot of business writing is basically above the head. It's not anchored in the body. So bring us back to moments. Bring us back to absolute concrete events. And then, so you've, you're bringing us into the moment. We've got a time and a place. Introduce real characters with real names and some dialogue. Even dialogue, even little quotes can be a way to add description because as soon as you add dialogue, you're bringing in another voice and you're authenticating whatever it is you're saying. You're not paraphrasing. And then lastly, is there any way you can bring in anything unanticipated, something unexpected? Because as soon as you do that with um, how you craft something, that's, that's story, that's giving the reader what it is they're hoping for, which is a surprise. On the dialogue point, I record a lot of things now, strangely enough. Because one of my big regrets as a journalist was I never learned shorthand. I tried to teach myself out of a book. It did not work. So... When I love interviewing people on the phone now. I would much rather go and do an, have an interview on the phone than go and see somebody because I can type right. while I'm talking. And it's those bits of dialogue. I, I wrote a story once um, in Thailand, a journalistic story with a group of people living in Thailand, and I kept getting up to go to the loo so that I could write down their dialogue right. in my notebook because I knew I would not remember it the next day for various reasons. But um, it was, you know, not something I could quickly note with a bit of shorthand. Yes. Look, I think dialogue is that is sort of an unsung part of writing. Uh, <clears throat> and you can use it. Obviously, you use it in journalism. But again, li- tiny little quotes, fragments of quotes immediately can lift the quality of a piece of writing. I've got another story like that. I wasn't rushing to the loo in Thailand. That was in Tibet when we, when for my first book, was partly set in Tibet. And uh, I, we were arrested. We were being arrested by the Chinese. So, but the things, the, um, the investigator and the um, chief, you know, questioner was saying was so fantastic I thought I've got to write this down (laughs) but I thought I can't really bring up my notebook because obviously they don't let journalists into Tibet so I was rushing off to the loo feigning the runs so then I could write (laughs) down those brilliant comments that the um the investigator was asking us 
it uh, so so dialogue and I, I wanted to touch very briefly on cliches because often we don't recognize the cliches that we we go for do you have any tips for people on avoiding cliches in the way that they're describing people and things because to, to just to finish that there's i was reading some research the other day that says that cliches just become noise so people don't even understand it and if you, if you say at the end of the day people aren't they don't even read it they just they've moved on past oh, it right uh look i think if you've if you've read it before if you've heard it before it's likely to be a cliche it's difficult if you've never actually if you don't recognize your own cliches that's where having someone else read it is useful there is um a there is a resource online because somebody told me about it which lists 600 and something clichés so you can actually check your you know your copy with the with the with this list but apart from that it's really just having a good eye and uh, and getting someone else to second read it for you all right well i'm going to research that list obviously i don't need it but i'm going to research right. it so that i can put it in the show notes claire thanks so much for sharing with us today oh you're welcome it's been a pleasure Stephen. if people want to work with you to improve their writing or their storytelling or just because they've really enjoyed listening to you today and they want to spend some more time with you how can they do that they can head to my uh, website, which is, as you said, wordstruck.com.au. They can work with me either on a one-on-one -on -one level. I do mentoring for writers for both in the corporate sphere and uh, people who are writing for personal reasons. And also they can hire me to run a Storytelling for Leaders workshop. I'm a partner with Anecdote, which is Australia's leading storytelling consultancy. And I run workshops um, in-house for companies, helping people develop storytelling skills, helping leaders develop those skills to better communicate and to foster unity and to bring out the human element within a business. So often lacking. Yes. You've been listening to Tailmaking, the podcast about getting your business out with me, Stephen Lewis. There's a lot more to find out about Claire Scobie at wordstruck.com.au. And there's more about the Tailmaking podcast at tailist.com. That's tail as in telling tales, tailist.com. You can sign up there for access to our exclusive subscriber library. And if you head over there now, you can see what Claire has very kindly donated. And so until the next story, thanks for listening.